Just a quick word from our sponsor, Panacea Financial, providing banking built for doctors by doctors. Do you have student loans? We'll hear what Dr. Michael Jurgens, a MedPeds physician and co-founder of Panacea Financial, had to say, especially with student loans coming back. Maybe you're like one of the many, many people who has questions. What should you do with your taxes? What should you do from a public service loan forgiveness perspective? What are the different tracks? And so what we built was a service so that you could actually meet with a financial planner that is licensed as a certified student loan professional, goes over your actual own loan data, your tax situation. Don't let time go by sitting on these lingering questions and be as informed as possible. Price stars at $200 flat fee that we thought was more accessible. And then you have access to that student loan professional afterwards. You can email questions and you know it's just really, we did this because it was the right thing to do. So it's been really popular. And um, for us, it's really translated into, I think a, a real value add to our specific group. You can find out more on Student Loan Consultation Service by heading to coreimpodcast.com backslash panacea. Again, coreimpodcast.com backslash panacea. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus member FDIC. Panacea Financial partners with TCG advisors to provide student loan consultation services. And with that, let's get into the episode. Just a quick word from our sponsor, Pattern Life. I am so excited to get the word out about Pattern because one thing I learned the hard way was disability insurance. For me, researching insurance got complicated, time consuming, and for me, I just got overwhelmed and trusted that my employer had some type of disability insurance, but boy, was I wrong in terms of what those details entailed. Pattern is great because it's actually geared towards clinicians and doctors and has helped thousands of doctors find and understand the insurance they're buying. You just click on the link in the show notes. I did this the other day. It takes two minutes to write your info, request quotes to compare them, or schedule a quick 15-minute phone call and buy risk-free. So request your quote today at patternlife.com so you can use your time better, save money, and be prepared for the unknowns of the future. Don't make mistakes like me and be confident that your family and income are protected no matter what the future holds. And with that, let's get back into the episode. Hi, I'm Carrie Blum. I'm a primary care doctor. And I'm Greg Katz. I'm a cardiologist, but I also like to think of myself as an internist. And welcome to Mind the Gap on CKD Staging. So CKD, it's one of those topics that uh, when I start talking about I very quickly bore myself and my eyes glaze over because, you know, CKD can feel like there's a lot of alphabet soup of letters and numbers with staging and there's estimates and there's all of these different things that don't always translate immediately to clinical interventions. And so, Carrie, I'm really looking forward to learning from you. I could be a little bit less bored by this topic and how I can figure out a way to translate it more directly to things that may change my perception of my patients. So, you know, Greg, I think you're not alone in terms of just immediately feeling a little bit bored when you hear the term staging. I think in general, that's our natural instinct. But honestly, I've kind of discovered for myself over the years that it's really the boring stuff that matters the most, right? So much of medicine is accumulation of risk factors over so many years until finally something bad. And we have an opportunity to to help really before that bad thing. So you got to care about the boring stuff. And that's really why the CKD staging matters. 
Not only that, but it's really an opportunity to improve our practice. I think that there's a lot of ways that we do this incorrectly. I think that but just like sometimes people just look at the EGFR and the BMP and they sort of take that at face value, give the patient a stage and kind of move on and don't realize why it's important. But one, EGFR is really just an estimate. It's really inaccurate in a lot of patients. So I think it's important for us to identify those patients. I also think that we do a really bad job, honestly, at thinking about the other half of staging, which is not the GFR, but whether there's albuminuria. So that's a really good point. Back in 2018, KDIGO, the Kidney Disease Improving Global Outcomes Group, changed the CKD staging to include both a G stage and an A stage. Carrie, what do each of those stages mean? And why does KDIGO think it's so important to add the A stage in there to our understanding of kidney function? So G stage stands for GFR. And in the rest of this episode, just to make things easier, I'm just going to call it G stage, right? And that's broken up in the exact same way that it used to be. The new staging system hasn't changed that at all. So if we want to put some numbers on there for the listeners, stage G5 is a GFR of less than 15. 15 to 29 is G4. 30 to 44 is stage G3B. 45 to 59 is stage G3A. And, and that's basically, you know, the patients that we identify because anyone with a GFR of over 60 is generally not considered to have CKD unless there's some other abnormality that we're identifying. So that's the G stage. A stage stands for albuminuria, right? And, and for the rest of this episode, I'm just going to say A stage just to keep things simple. The breakdown there is that anything from zero to 29 in terms of milligrams of albumin per day is considered normal. 30 milligrams to 299 milligrams of albumin per day is stage A2, which is considered moderately increased albuminuria. And anything of 300 milligrams or more per day is stage A3, which is severely increased albuminuria. So the G stages go up to five and the A stages go up to three. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the highest stage that you could have for kidney disease is stage G5, A3. And it's both the G stage and the A stage are independent risk factors. They're both independently important. Not only that, but as we all kind of know as internists, knowing our patient's GFR is important in terms of medication dosing. The lower someone's GFR is, the more likely they are to experience complications of CKD. So you really need to be on top of monitoring for those, counseling about those, and probably most important, right? So identifying a patient with proteinuria really provides you an opportunity to turn around the natural history of CKD using medications that are really helpful in patients with proteinuric kidney disease. So I hear you, Greg, it sounds boring, but in reality, we have a lot of work to do. And I hope to convince you by the end of this that we should be more excited by this topic. And so what's wrong with how we're measuring G-stage? So in order to answer that question, I really honestly think it's better to start with just an understanding of what GFR is and what would be a perfect way to measure it. And then compare that to what we do in real life. So GFR, you know, the name tells you everything. Glomerular filtration rate, right? It's the amount of serum flowing through the glomerulus into the filtrate per unit time. So the best way for us to figure that out would be to inject a molecule into our patient's vein, which is fully filtered in the glomerulus, enters the filtrate. And then once that happens, it's not reabsorbed or secreted into the tubule. And then you can either measure that molecule in the urine or you could take serial measurements of it in the serum, and you could identify how quickly that patient is clearing the molecule. And that would be the perfect way of doing it. Right? But that's, but, not what, that's not what we do. No, not at all. 
I mean, in, a, in an ideal world, right, in order to measure GFR, we would have to have a molecule that is in our patient in an exact known dose, gets freely filtered, and then once it's in the tubule, nothing happens to it. It is not reabsorbed and not secreted. And unfortunately, it is, there's just no molecule like that that's produced in equal quantity in, in every individual. And because of how cumbersome it would be to inject everybody with a certain dose of a biomarker, we end up using something endogenous, which is creatinine, which is often helpful, but often a really poor estimate. I've certainly noticed on the electronic medical record that there's a lowercase e before GFR. And so I guess I should take that to really force home the point that this is estimated and it's not measured directly. Yes, that's a huge teaching point, honestly, for me with my internal medicine residents. And honestly, just to illustrate that, let me give you a few numbers. The 95% confidence interval for a patient with an eGFR based on a creatinine-only formula, GFR of 60 that 95% confidence interval actually ranges from about 35 to 85. Well, right? that's so like, that's a massive, massive difference. It's huge, right? And so if we can figure out which patients are estimated correctly and which patients are misestimated by that creatinine formula, we may be able to help our patients more sort of either downstage the ones who think they have CKD and don't, or actually from the other side of the coin, potentially assign a lower GFR than we think the patient has. So talk to me more about the the limitations of the current biomarker that we use. Like what's wrong with creatinine? So creatinine is made in skeletal muscle, right? And we all have different amounts of skeletal muscle. And because of that, we use age and we use sex as sort of a way of trying to adjust for skeletal muscle mass. But that's really not a perfect surrogate for skeletal muscle mass, as we both know. Like, for example... I have a lot less skeletal muscle than a 34-year-old guy in the NBA. And he would have a higher serum creatinine because he has more creatinine production, even though his glomerular filtration rate may be exactly the same as mine. So increased creatinine production is one thing that can boost the creatinine level in patients with bulky skeletal muscle. Yeah. So in general, if you have a lot of muscle, your creatinine levels are high and that will make your kidney function look worse. Or, you know, on the other side, a patient with decreased skeletal muscle mass will have a really low creatinine because they're not producing very much. And that will falsely reassure you that their GFR is fine. But if you think about them critically and you realize that their baseline creatinine really should be 0.4 and not 0.7, then you may recognize that this patient has CKD. Yeah, it's just one more reason why we need to be concerned about our frail patients. You know, we have so much evidence that frailty is a risk factor for a lot of different things. And what I'm getting a sense of is that if I'm just looking at someone's creatinine who's fairly frail, I'm going to get a false reassurance that their EGFR is in the normal range when actually it's not. So the first flaw with creatinine as a marker of GFR is the impact of skeletal muscle on what the levels in the serum are. But there are other problems with creatinine, aren't there? Yeah, there's actually a host of other problems. I mean, the biggest one, honestly, is the fact that creatinine is actually secreted in the tubule. So it breaks that rule that I told you that the perfect molecule would have to be not secreted or reabsorbed. And that secretion of creatinine can actually be influenced by a variety of processes. So it can be blocked by drugs. And the most common one that we see is Bactrim, the trimethoprim portion of that actually inhibits the secretion of creatinine into the tubule. Um, and also it can be enhanced in certain situations. So in patients with a GFR that's sort of 
in that abnormal, but still not too bad range, like I would say in the 50s or so, there is a compensatory increase in the secretion of creatinine in the proximal tubule, which will lower the serum creatinine level, despite the fact that the patient's glomerular filtration rate is not doing so hot. So that, that actually is one way that we can miss relatively early stage patients by looking only at creatinine. I think you've persuaded me that the flaws with the creatinine as an estimator of GFR have to do with both the fact that it's present in muscle mass and so is going to be dictated by patient's body habitus and and distribution of skeletal muscle, but also that the fact that it's not just perfectly filtered and it's also secreted into the tubule. And that's going to be impacted by the stage of, of renal dysfunction that we have. And then, you know, one of the most recent changes in this formula has to do with the removal of race. Can you educate me on why that was done and how I should be thinking about that? Yeah. So historically, this, you know, this race factor was added to the equation because it was observed in sort of empirical studies that for a given serum creatinine in African-American patients, the GFR was actually a bit higher. So this was thought to be potentially related to increased skeletal muscle mass. But as we've sort of gotten a better understanding of what race is and where this comes from, we've eliminated that factor, which understaged African-American patients and potentially made them more vulnerable to missing CKD. So I think that was definitely a move in the right direction for our profession as a whole kind of removing that social construct from the way we think about a biological process. And so if creatinine has flaws, is there something else that we should be using for our patients who we're not sure we're getting a great estimate on that EGFR? Yeah, Greg, so you walked right into that one. There actually is. It's called cystatin C. Have you heard of this one before? It's pretty new. I've heard of it. I scanned some New England Journal articles that had that in the title. And so I know it's hot and I'm supposed to know more about it. But frankly, my dumb cardiology brain has not equipped me to, to fully understand the nuances of cystatin C. All right. So this, this is a perfectly timed conversation. I think maybe you're going to love it. So first of all, cystatin C, it's not made in only skeletal muscle. It's made in every nucleated cell. And so in that way, it kind of gets around this skeletal muscle mass being a complicating factor. It's also freely filtered, just like creatinine. So it does have that characteristic that we're looking for. And unlike creatinine, it is not reabsorbed or secreted at all in the tubules. So in that way, it's much better than creatinine for certain folks. Now, let me backtrack a little bit because it's probably not perfect. You know, new studies keep coming out showing that other processes can influence the statin C levels, for example, inflammation, potentially diabetes as well. And just like creatinine, sex and age do play a role. So there are corrective factors for sex and age when you use a statin C based estimate for GFR. So who's the right patient to measure cystatin C in? And when does it offer me useful information above and beyond what I can glean from a creatinine? So first, let me just say on a population level, it provides you a more accurate GFR estimate when combined with creatinine. So there's new CKD epi formulas, which were just published in 2021, which you alluded to that removes the race coefficient. And the nice thing about these 2021 formulas is that there's actually several for us to choose from. There's the good old creatinine-only based formula. There's the cystatin C-based formula. And then there's one that actually combines both variables. And if you look at large populations, the one that combines both variables time and time again outperforms either of the first two formulas. So just in general, checking a cystatin C will give you a better estimate of GFR. Now, with that said, I don't check it in everybody. 
right? Honestly, I think it would be just a little bit too much testing. There is some cost associated with it. So what I do is I think about my patient. I think about them critically. I think about their skeletal muscle mass. I think about their medication list. I think about their risk factors for CKD and where they may live sort of in the natural progression of that disease. And if I think that there's a chance they may be early stage CKD, I do check it. Um, So there's a lot of situations where it's helpful. And, And one actually comes to mind that happened recently in clinic. So I had this patient who actually, unfortunately, several years before I met him, had an above the knee amputation. So most of his skeletal muscle in the right lower extremity was missing. And then also uh, he had diabetes. He had relatively poorly controlled hypertension. And to me, this is the guy who sort of would classically have CKD, right? He was in his mid fifties and he was coming to me for the first time. I checked urine albumin and lo and behold, his was high. And so that sort of confirmed my suspicion that he may actually have some degree of CKD. And that's what I decided. Let me check his cystatin C, right? Like he's got a couple risk factors for me potentially understaging his kidney disease, right? The amputation and also the potential early G stage. So I checked one and using the cystatin C only formula, which I felt was the most accurate one for him, his GFR was bumped down from what was considered normal or above 60 down to 50, right? And now this patient carries the diagnosis of of CKD stage G3A. And since his albumin level was increased, he was a stage A2 as well. What I love about this case is that you used your brain to identify a patient who you thought was vulnerable, and then you ordered the confirmatory testing, knowing the flaws with our current methods of analysis that actually enabled you to objectively identify the fact that this patient had low GFR. And that's going to change your cardiovascular risk assessment. That's going to change some of the medicines that you would put them on. That's going to change your threshold for nephrotoxic agents. And so I love that this forces us to change the way that we're going to evaluate some of their risk factors. That's why I love practicing medicine, because we get to think critically and identify ways to help patients that other folks may have not recognized before. Yeah. And for him, like you mentioned, like he was on very high dose gabapentin for diabetic neuropathy. And I had to think a little bit about dropping his dose to adjust it for his GFR. I also bumped up his dose of statin just because I was really worried about him from a cardiovascular perspective. And I think I'm going to be more aggressive with him overall, just in terms of blood pressure lowering and and other things. I've also seen other situations where, you know, a patient may drop from say stage three to stage four. And that's where I may be calling my friendly nephrologist to say, hey, can you be involved in this patient's care? Because we need to start preparing them for dialysis. And so this stuff actually does matter. It matters mostly to primary care doctors and nephrologists, but I think that every specialty may have some connection to this, to be honest. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, 
but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. So to summarize all of this, in a patient where there's any uncertainty about the degree of their renal impairment, those are patients that getting a cystatin C might be helpful to better understand their kidney disease. The pros of cystatin C is that it's not affected by skeletal muscle mass the same way that creatinine is, and it's not secreted in the tubules like creatinine, which can also affect the levels in the blood. But, you know, in terms of potential drawbacks, we do know based on some relatively nascent literature that certain conditions such as inflammatory diseases, diabetes, and thyroid disease seem to increase cystatin C levels a bit. But, you know, the impact of that and how that should change interpretation is really unclear at this point in time. So I think that you've fully persuaded me that doing a better job of estimating the amount of flow through the kidney is really, really important and often changes management for our patients. But when you were talking about the patient before who had the discordance between creatinine and cystatin C-based GFRs, you also referred to the albuminuria. And that kind of gets to this idea of qualitative versus quantitative renal function. And so GFR to me is a measure of how much is being filtered through the kidney and how much each nephron is actually doing. But I also care about the quality of the work that our kidney is doing and the quality of work performed by each nephron. And I think that gets to the A stage. And so how are we measuring this? Do you measure the A stage for everybody? And how should I be thinking about the importance of proteinuria? So let me just start by giving you some definitions before I answer those questions. But first thing we should know are the actual ranges for the stages. So any urine albumin to creatinine ratio of 29 or less is considered normal. And that's stage A1. Stage A2 is this category called moderately increased albuminuria. And that's a patient with a urine albumin creatinine ratio in the range of 30 to 299. And then anything of the ratio of 300 milligrams of albumin per gram of creatinine is considered severely increased. And that's stage A3. So those are the categories. The reason this matters, well, you know, I was thinking about this in the shower. And the beautiful thing about the kidney is that the endothelium actually comes adjacent to the outside world, right? And so we have an opportunity to measure a body fluid, urine in this case, that is in great proximity to the endothelium, something that we really truly care about a lot because we know that endothelial dysfunction is at the root of a lot of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and we talk about endothelial dysfunction all the time in the cardiovascular realm, but there are no fluids in cardiology that we're able to directly measure. Yeah, so the nephrologists win on that one. And the thing is that when glomeruli are not functioning appropriately, albumin gets into the urine, right? We have to go back to med school and kind of remember what the glomerulus is supposed to do. It's a, Please it's a don't filter. say the word podocyte right now. I'm not going to say podocyte, but you did. So <laughs> anyways, you know, it's to put it simply, right? The glomerulus's job is to let certain things through and not others, right? No cells are allowed through. No large proteins are allowed through. And albumin is a large negatively charged protein. If there is endothelial dysfunction or any other part of the glomerulus, maybe the podocyte, that's not working, then protein will get in the urine and we can check that, right? And so this logical step is proteinuria provides us a snapshot of how our kidney is doing right now, which GFR does not, right? GFR is sort of shows us 
what has happened to our kidneys so far and how much damage the glomeruli have accumulated to the point where they're no longer able to even filter. But the dysfunction uh, of allowing albumin through happens way, way before the sclerosis and the failure to filter. So, you know, it shows us where our patient's at and gives us an opportunity to identify high-risk people who need more aggressive intervention. So do you check proteinuria for all of your patients or just those who you suspect may have some degree of CKD? The latter, honestly, because if I were to check a urine albumin in every patient, I'd be swimming in a bunch of false positives because there's a lot of things that can actually cause that to be positive, which are not reflective of a chronic glomerular damage process, right? So even just vigorous exercise can cause albuminuria or being upright can cause albuminuria. That's an entity known as orthostatic proteinuria. Fevers and a variety of other processes can cause some temporary spillage of albumin into the urine. And so for that reason, I don't check in everybody. I think about the patient, right? I think about whether they have risk factors for CKD. I certainly check it in all patients with diabetes, which is guideline-based. I check it in all patients with known CKD. And, and more frequently, if I know that they already have albuminuria, I will trend that more frequently, like say three, four times a year to make sure that I'm, my interventions are actually working. I should let you know that the way that we measure this, right, a spot urine albumin creatinine ratio, you and I spent the whole first half of this episode talking about why creatinine kind of sucks for some patients, right? And it sucks for the same reason in this test that it does in the serum test. If you think about it, a patient with increased skeletal muscle mass, for example, will have more creatinine in their urine than someone with less. And because that's in the denominator, that affects the ratio. And so it's important to, to think about this ratio with a critical mind in the same way you think about a patient's estimated GFR. And if you don't trust it, you should just measure a 24-hour urine albumin. That will be the most accurate way of figuring out how much proteinuria your patient's having per day. And so albuminuria matters because of the relationship between the albumin in the urine and cardiovascular risk. It also tells us about how aggressive we need to be about both targeted renal therapies like renin-angiotensin inhibition, SGLT2 inhibitors, finerenone, but it also tells us how aggressive we need to be about modifying the risk factors. What glucose target do we need to have? What blood pressure target? And so it's important for a number of different reasons. I actually learned something recently, which kind of shocked me uh, when I was creating a talk for the residents, which is that RAS inhibition only has an additional independent kidney protective benefit in patients with proteinuria. Right? Other than that, it just has the benefit of blood pressure lowering like any other blood pressure medication. So in a patient with very elevated levels of albumin in the urine, I'm really, really pushing those ACEs and ARBs. And even if that patient has hyperkalemia, I might still push the ACEs and ARBs and, uh, and put them on a potassium binder. Whereas, you know, if I had a patient, even if they were relatively late stage CKD, but they had no albumin in their urine and things seemed to be relatively stable, if they had hyperkalemia, I would avoid an ACE and an ARB and I would just lower their blood pressure using other agents. So albumin arguably has a more influence on management than GFR, yet it's something that we measure much less than we should, right? This, the new staging system from KDIGO, I believe came out in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, or even before that. And it's just not really been picked up. Like I don't really hear people talking about the A stage 
very much. Do you, Greg? Or? You know, it. I see it in notes written by nephrologists, but it's not something that's made its way fully into everyone's practice. And that's the way that that these things happen sometimes. Clinical inertia is really, really powerful. And it takes a lot of really passionate people talking about issues that matter over and over again to drill into the heads of those of us who are sometimes slow on the uptake of new ways of doing things that we need to do it better. And so I think kind of along those lines, you, you've persuaded me that I'm not doing a good enough job at evaluating my patient's renal function. What I'll take away from uh, uh, the things that you've taught me today are, number one, quality of measurement of somebody's glomerular filtration really matters. And creatinine has flaws, and cystatin C for the carefully selected patient may be a better way of evaluating their quantitative filtration through the kidney. The second thing is that quality of filtration really matters too. And the amount of protein, particularly albumin that someone has in their urine is really a marker of endothelial function, renal risk, and cardiovascular risk in a lot of ways too. And the fact that we haven't done a great job of disseminating the importance of both a G stage and an A stage for chronic kidney disease is flaw in the way that many of us do things that we need to get better at. And so I'm going to take away that I need to measure a G stage and an A stage in all of my patients. I'm very appreciative of the idea of having a more precise quantitative estimate with the GFR and a qualitative estimate using the albuminuria. And so thinking about not just how much, but also how well the kidney is filtering. Yeah, that was a great summary, Greg. You know, I couldn't have said it better. And I agree. We started with a topic that wasn't so sexy, but I think now by the end, we're both convinced that it's important so that we can now go take better care of our patients. And that is a wrap for today. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. Thank you to Yi Chi Zhang for the audio editing. Thank you to Ariella Kohler-Riley for the accompanying graphic. And as always, we love hearing feedback. So email us at hello at coreimpodcast.com. Opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. Listening to this podcast does not constitute the formation of a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing that you heard should be construed as personalized medical advice. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.